(laughs) Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church from the Gospel of John. In the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked in the room where the disciples were for fear of the temple authorities. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Having said this, the Savior showed them the marks of crucifixion. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw Jesus, who said to them again, Peace be with you. As Abba God has sent me, so I'm sending you. After saying this, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. It happened that one of the twelve, Thomas, nicknamed Didymus, or twin, was absent when Jesus came. The other disciples kept telling him, We've seen Jesus. Thomas's answer was, I'll never believe it without putting my finger in the nail marks and my hand into the spear wound. On the eighth day, the disciples were once more in the room, and this time Thomas was with them. Despite the locked doors, Jesus came and stood before them, saying, Peace be with you. Then to Thomas, Jesus said, Take your finger and examine my hands. Put your hand into my side. Don't persist in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas said in response, My Savior and my God. Jesus then said, You've become a believer because you saw me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs as well, signs not recorded here in the presence of the disciples. But these have been recorded to help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the only begotten, so that by believing you may have life in Jesus' name. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Alpha and Omega, our beginning and our end. You break through the locks of our gated communities in our hardened hearts. You accept our doubts. You heal our desire for certainty. And by your Spirit's gentle touch, we ask that you would make us a people forgiven and forgiving. All this in Jesus Christ, the giver of peace, we pray. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've ever experienced tide or just the movement of water and kind of been swept in it in and of itself. It can be a beautiful and scary thing. I remember one of the first times I um, was at the beach and was like doing body surfing and I was like trying to figure it out as a kid and I'm like swimming with a wave and it would like take me over and like crash into the sand and then finally at one point I caught one and I like just kept riding with the biggest smile on my face and then I ended and like stood up only to realize that like the swimsuit was not fully on um, you know where you're like but I was still excited um, excited to be part of something that's bigger than you that's sweeping you that's taking you someplace and you just feel like I'm along for the ride Well, this church has a season for this. 
It's this day after Easter. It's this season after Easter. It's seven weeks, which poetically is one week more than Lent. So it's this week to kind of say it it is finished. This is the fullness of life. And that Easter is not something that we just celebrate one day, but it's a life that we live into. See, I think the church is commonly known for kind of having like it's maybe one celebration. We allow ourselves to have one day where we can celebrate a new life and then, and then we kind of set it aside, our, our, our certain holidays. But, but the gospel and the work of Jesus in our life, the work in the spirit of life works totally differently. It shows up, it surprises us, it catches us like a wave catches us and pushes us into directions, into ways that we were never ready for. God, when God is at work in our lives, it's not something in which we can control and say, today is the day that God shows up. But it's something that sweeps us off our feet, surprises us. And that's what Eastertide is all about. And so we're going to explore this surprising God that shows up in the teaching and the life of Jesus and brings us and sweeps us into this place of intimacy with God. But it all starts from a certain place that I think many of us know. It starts from this place of fear and doubt. The disciples had just left the crucifixion and they're scared. They've deserted Jesus and they realize that it's all over. And so they did what all of us do in the midst of our fears is they just locked themselves behind walls and doors and they hid It's the same thing that happened in the very beginning of the story of Scripture in the garden. In the garden, the the creation of Adam and Eve, they, they, they had violated God's trust and protection. And so the first way in which they react to this is they hide. They cover themselves out of fear. They locked themselves behind doors. And yet God pursued, always, always pursues. If there's one thing that we see through the whole story of Scripture is that God is on the move and is on the move of pursuing after humanity again and again and again. And when he finally catches humanity by becoming humanity himself, we see that as he catches it, he pursues it with such grace And so God walks through this garden where we are hiding and asks this question, where are you? I personally don't think that God was speaking words of judgment like, where are you? I think God was slowly moving. Maybe the places in which they had walked in intimacy before and just, where are you? Not that God had lost them but was bringing them out, bringing their truths and deepest self out, calling us out of our fear, calling us to tear down our walls, the shame that we use to cover ourselves. God is saying clearly to the disciples from the beginning of creation and to us this morning, where are you? He's calling through all of creation in this full pursuit I don't know about you, but I go through life sometimes often feeling lost. 
I had a good friend growing up that was playing hide-and-go-seek, and when he played hide-and-go-seek, um, he hid so well, and he would describe that he hid there for an entire day until mom and dad kind of called the police, and then they, everyone was on a search party. In reality, talking to his mom, I think it was about 30 minutes, but it felt like a long time for him. There's those moments when we hide from others, from ourselves, from this world, and in our hiding, which we think feels safe, we begin to feel lost, disconnected. I often do, and I'm not even aware of it. But so what are we supposed to do with this one precious life? We have endless doubts about God, about church. I have endless doubts about myself, and my first response to all my lostness is to hide to put up walls between me and relationships and God and this world, walls between myself and others. And I put up these walls in different kind of ways. I build them up in different kind of ways. Sometimes I put up the walls by just saying, okay, life, I feel lost in life, and so I am just going to try harder at life. Like, you're going to try to bring me down. I'm going to crush you with all of my power possible. And so I make greater to-do lists. I wake up early and I go to bed late. And in doing so, in trying to control life, is a way of hiding from life. Or I do the other way, which is I just kind of quit on it. I think we all have ways in which we cope and we experience this lostness that we have in this world. I'll do anything to move me out of a place of pain and fear that I'm so scared to get stuck in. What are you afraid of getting stuck in? And when you sense it showing up, how do you react to it? In all these times, I long to hear God's question, where are you? Well, God, I'm naked. I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm the prodigal. I'm the judgmental elder brother. I'm all of it. And I long, like the disciples, to see the resurrected, the universal Christ walk in through my locked doors, into my hiding places, my hardened heart, and say one thing, peace. God breaking through these hiding places, these walls we put up, and proclaims peace. And we, in this passage, we see that there is no wall that Christ cannot bring down. For some of us, we walk into this Easter tide season much like Thomas, full of doubt or discouragement. You know, I think Thomas always gets like a bad rap and gets named something that was never named. He's always called, when I was growing up, he was always called Doubting Thomas, you know? And it was like, boo, Doubting Thomas. You know, we all sometimes get these nicknames. It's like, I didn't probably deserve that, but somehow I got that to define who I was. Um, If you don't, this is strange and weird facts about about Will Forsythe. Um, I have, oh man, I have um, webbed fingers and toes right here, right in the middle. Yeah. Um, That went well during middle school and high school. Um, So some of my friends called me Webbed Willie. That was a high school name. Um, or my son, when he was pretty young, and he saw me, he would call me Blubber Man. Yeah, that was another. There's just unfair names we live with, and I actually think that Doubting Thomas may be one of the most unfair names ever given. The church should have put him as a saint and labeled him as Honest 
Thomas. Vulnerable Thomas. He's the only one that had the integrity and the vulnerability to say, I'm a skeptic about this whole thing. I haven't seen Jesus. I know a lot of us in the Easter season, the Easter tide season, when we hear Christ has risen, he has risen indeed on a Sunday, deep inside we might be saying like, to be honest, I don't totally know. Is, has he done that? Yeah, risen indeed. What certainty do we have of all of this, we may ask? That's what Thomas asked with great honesty. We could talk all day maybe about the like, historical evidence about the resurrection, and it's important to see these things that uphold this beautiful story. But we will still doubt, because like Thomas, we can't touch the hands and the side. We have no evidence of Christ's wounds. We see the problem with the resurrection. You see, the problem with the resurrected body is that it's hard to nail down, to examine, to do our experiments on, to control. It's just not how God works. Touching Jesus' wounds is what Thomas seeks. And when we look to touch the wounds of Christ, in doing so, we end up touching our own deepest wounds. We have to remember that in the Christian story, there is this beautiful reality that we worship and serve a God that is wounded, vulnerable. Resurrection doesn't erase the scars that God carries, but it provides these wounds as healing. I wonder if Thomas was looking for this suffering servant, this Messiah, because this is the one that the prophets had talked about. When the prophets decide what the Messiah, talked about what the Messiah was going to look like, they didn't describe someone who was just going to be triumphant or victorious or like the new Roman king. They actually described it as someone who was a suffering servant to a wounded world. And so Thomas doesn't just say, you know, I need to touch it and see it and get my empirical evidence. I think he's saying, no, no, no. If he's truly the Messiah, then he is going to be one who has suffered and who has wounded and is walking into this world, healing the wounds. And so I want to touch that side. I want to touch his wounded hands because I want to know the Savior I follow is one who understands what it means to suffer and be wounded, but is resilient enough to move towards peace and love. Jesus immediately says, touch my hands, my sides. You can feel the deep intimacy of this moment. That the word became flesh, and flesh means vulnerability. Flesh means wounds. And so God, Christ, as we comes into our hidden and broken down walls, our locked doors and walks right through, meets us. He meets us in our doubts and in the wounds and the places exactly where we are. This week I um, saw a, a friend who um, does amazing art, does a lot of icons. His name is Scott Erickson, and we used his book not too long ago on prayer during the season of Lent. Um, but he, he posted this picture. Um, it's kind of a strange picture. We'll see if we can bring it up, this icon. 
and he called it this. This icon is called the Sacred Doubting Finger. And I want to read a little bit of what he said because it just struck me. In a post, Eric, Scott Erickson said this, Our sacred doubting finger helps us enter into the paradox of life. They help us touch the death of what we've known and the birth of something new. Dr. Kurt Thomas, in his book, The Soul of Shame, explains that in our brains, we experience doubt as a sensation of relational disconnection. It is not necessarily a these-facts-don't-make-sense issue. It has more to do with a feeling of relational distrust. Doubt is an embodied ache when we thought we knew what this was, but you're not sure anymore. He goes on, friends, at least once a day, I think this is all just made up, and it might just be. But I do know this, your doubt is not something you need to solve. The divine will deal with it and show up to it. What is up to you is are you going to put your sacred doubting finger into the wounds you are present with? If you get a physical Jesus, please, please call me. I'd like to come over, but most of us are not going to get that. What we will get throughout our lives is a series of other wounds we must bring our unknowing to. It usually starts with our own wounds. Because to bring our sacred doubting finger to your own wound is to ask the divine God, are you involved in my life at all? Then we will encounter the wounds of those we love and ask, are you there too? Friends, strangers, every wound in the world begs to ask the question, is newness possible? See, I think our, our place of doubt and vulnerability, when it's just not out of a stubborn arrogance, but it's out of a place of vulnerability, it allows us to just say, man, life sometimes has some wounds. Life has some suffering. Life has some disconnection, and when I experience that, God, sometimes I also feel this, this rush of doubt and questioning in my life. And to all of that, God says, come closer, come near. Our doubts are not some test that God is giving us, hoping we get the right answer, but they are an invitation to deeper intimacy, to touch the hands and the sides. I've heard something very freeing when it comes to my own doubts. From the author Paul Tillich says, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of our faith. Or as the writer Anne Lamont says, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Certainty is. The resurrection calls us to hide, to not hide from our doubts, but to step into belief. Because God has invaded and is breaking down our walls and revealing our hidden selves and proclaiming peace. The most important thing for us to understand is not to solve our doubts. That will and should never happen. 
We are not God. God is not a problem to be solved, but a relationship to trust, a mystery to experience and to surrender to. The most important fact is that Jesus still pursues us in our doubts, in our fear, in our insecurity. He walks through walls we put up and he says, where are you? Peace be with you. I mean, I don't know if we can understand how astonishing of of a resurrection greeting this is to the disciples. They just denied him. They just fled from him. They just watched him be crucified, and now they're scared. And Jesus shows up, and he doesn't say, hey, guys, what happened? I thought we were in this together. He doesn't yell at them and say, I knew that you would fail me. Jesus walks through the doors of those who had denied him, of those who had fled from him, and he looks them in the face and he says, peace be with you. I see your fears. I see your doubts. I see your faith and your joy, and I have come to give you peace. Christ restores them, forgives them, He breathes life into their life of fear and asks them to go to the world breathing this life for all people. The disciples and us, after this, are given kind of this last beatitude. You know those teachings, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are broken and pure of heart. It says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. In the midst of our questions, our doubts, our curiosities, our sufferings, and our wound, God proclaims peace and blessing. Peace means this. A lot of different variations over history to fasten, to bind together, to reconcile, to have an agreement, a a treaty, an absence of war. The Hebrew word shalom, meaning to restore all things, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with creation, our relationship with God and community. Jesus steps into our fears and says, be restored. And then go into this world with the very life of my spirit and restore. God meets us in our wounds so that we may have the breath and the life of the spirit in us. And take her peace into this world to forgive, to reconcile, to bind all together and restore with courageous love in the midst of deep doubts to restore our relationship with all creation, with community, and with God. And the work of restoration is scary. We're wounded in it. And it doesn't always work out the exact way we hoped it would. But we ask in the midst of it that God would reveal the deepest part of us that he has been calling from the beginning of creation. That God would bring and breathe life into our very soul so that we may go into this world with a divine and wounded God and break down the walls of our fear and transform us into agents of peace. 
So friends, in this Eastertide moment and season, may you hear God's call to you. Where are you? Where are you hiding? Where are you covered with shame? And to those wounds in your life, God proclaims shalom and peace, not just for you, but for all that is connected to you. Let's pray.